You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. COVID-19, mRNA, and the future of vaccines by Amish Adalja. Thank you. Uh, thank you to ARI for this invitation to speak. Um, and thanks uh, for showing up uh, to hear uh, what I think is a really great story. In this talk, I'm going to talk about COVID-19, the mRNA vaccines that, that have been so useful to control this pandemic, and the future of vaccines. And I think when you read the story of how these vaccines were developed and the fact that they were distributed so quickly, they, talk, they talk, talked about it as Manhattan Project 2.0. That's how Operation Warp Speed was first conceived. And I think it's important to kind of separate what happened with Operation Warp Speed and Manhattan Project 2.0 to get vaccines into people's arms from what led to the fact that there was a USS Enterprise to go into warp speed. And that's sort of what I'm going to talk about is what were the intermediate steps along the way that allowed these vaccines to be poised and ready to go so quickly to be put into an Operation Warp Speed type program? Because I think if you understand the progression of how this all happened, you'll see, you know, first that science is methodical, that there was a major process going on, and there's lots of biological principles that we do, we can and do know, and that helps condition how we think about these vaccines, why people like me were very confident in them and remain very confident in them. And I think if you have that context, it helps to melt away doubts, conspiracy, conspiracy fantasies, as I heard Ankar just called them uh, recently, and all the rest of it. So I think this is hopefully what you gain out of this. I have a, a pretty ambitious agenda. I talk very fast, I know that. Most people listen to me in 0.5 speed. Um, <clears throat> if you try to speed me up, I sound like uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, which in eighth grade, I played Alvin in a little play at our school because, because I, was, I, I always talk fast. So I'm going to start with very basic stuff. What is a vaccine? The value of vaccine platforms, and that's the bigger concept of what we're dealing with here. And then go through some of the COVID-19 vaccines that you all have heard about, including new, some that you may not have heard about. And then how to think about the first generation vaccines in terms of their efficacy, their long-term safety concerns. And throughout this, I'm going to be kind of showing you that science is not omniscient, but it's, it's, it's not arbitrary. It's, there's a, a, that this is uh, something I think that's very clear that, that's missed, that the public doesn't see, that just because you don't know the answer to something doesn't mean everything is possible. And I'm going to try to emphasize that. And then the last part is going to kind of be some of my experimental thinking on what my my dealings with the anti-vaccine movement and what people have been starting to understand about some of the leaders in this movement. So I'm going to start with a very simple thing. What is a vaccine? Most of you have been vaccinated against something. You've heard about vaccines. What, what do they actually do? So what a vaccine is, is a substance, usually of a similar but not identical nature to a desired target, administered to an organism. Remember, animals get vaccines too in a deliberate attempt to protect it against an infectious disease by stimulating the immune system. So it doesn't mean, it doesn't tell you what the vaccine is going to, going to look like. It might be a whole virus, it might be, uh, it might be uh, a damaged virus, it might be a piece of a virus, or it could be mRNA. And it's not just viruses, it's bacteria. We get vaccines against uh, parasites, protozoa, fungi, anything can really be vaccinated against. And now you're seeing cancer vaccines or even vaccines against drug abuse. Uh, for example, a vaccine against cocaine so that when you ingest cocaine, your immune system reacts to it and you don't get the euphoria. So this is a very broad concept, and that sets the, the, the tone for what we're going to be going through. This is a very busy slide, but it explains what a vaccine actually does. So 
on the top. You can see, you, you have the little person getting their shot. The antigen, whatever is in that vaccine, is going to be picked up and st stimulate the immune system. I'm not going to go into all the detail of all the different cells, but suffice it to say, there are B cells and there are T cells. B cells are what are responsible for making antibodies, and T cells do a lot of other things, including help stimulate the B cells and attack cells that are infected. So T cells are just as important as antibodies, and they often aren't talked about so much, and I'll talk about why that's important when it comes to the COVID vaccines, because T cells are a little bit more complicated to explain to the general public, they're harder to measure, so they're not well appreciated, but they are a major role in the immune system. And then the other part to keep in mind is you see these things that say memory, memory helper T cell, memory killer T cell, memory B cells. That's what's unique about our immune system, is that it has memory. So that when you get re-exposed to something, and that's the bottom part, all of those memory cells jump into action again and take care of the problem before it gets too severe in most cases. So the fact is the immune system has memory. So when you hear about antibodies falling over time, that's meant to happen. That's what happens because we have memory cells that spring into action very quickly to be able to deal with whatever the issue is. So vaccines traditionally were made in a process that was kind of, you know, some people have called it like a little bit of like kitchen chemistry, that you figure out what you want to target, what the antigenic target is, what part of the pathogen that you're attacking or do you need to attack? You figure out the specific protein, whether it's a certain protein, the spike protein on coronavirus or the hemagglutinin protein on influenza. You figure that out, and then you develop some way of, of stimulating your immune system with maybe a piece of the virus, or you take a whole virus and you deactivate it in formaldehyde, and then you, you administer it to somebody, and then you basically get, this re you get the, the immune re reaction that you need. It's usually focused on antibody targets, as I said, but T-cell immunity is really important and underappreciated. And this is generally a long process. It, the, the fastest vaccine in the past was the mumps vaccine, which took four years to make, and that was using this whole process. So when people started talking about COVID vaccines, we were trying to be very measured because we didn't know how quickly it would happen because traditionally it hadn't been something that could happen very quickly. However, what was different is the vaccines that jumped to the forefront were called platform, they're using what are called platform technologies. And this next page, um, that's a report I wrote prior to the pandemic at the Center for Health Security on vaccine platforms, saying that they would be game changers uh, in pandemics because of the speed with which they could get into people's arms. So, so what do I mean by platform? So that's a dictionary definition of platform, a plan or design. It, and I think it's better just to show pictures. So these are Nintendo games. The Nintendo console is a platform, and you're just switching different games into it. That's basically what platform technologies allow you to do, plug and play. Another example of a platform is the space shuttle. You, it can be reused. You can change the payload, but, you're, but it's a st still the same space shuttle. Or, to make it more modern, the SpaceX rockets that are reusable. Those are platform technologies. That's the same concept that is being used in certain vaccines currently. The mRNA vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine. So it's not surprising that they were so fast because the platforms were already built. All they needed to do was change the payload. So these were the three types of coronavirus vaccines that were in development. So I'll, I'll take them in order. So protein, the protein-based, basically, so it's the spike protein on the coronavirus that's important. So the protein-based vaccines take the spike protein, it's purified and injected. In the United States, we don't have any protein-based vaccines for coronavirus right now. There's going to be one shortly, but it's not out. But if, if you maybe have heard of the Novavax vaccine 
that's, that's, a, that's a, uh, a spike protein which is purified and injected. The other type, number two, is viral vector. So this is exemplified by AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson. So what they do is they take the same spike protein and they put it in a virus, a common cold virus called an adenovirus, and you get a shot that has that virus in it. That virus goes and infects your cells and then starts pumping out the spike protein, which your immune system produces an immune response to. So this is J&J &J and AstraZeneca in the middle. On the bottom are the mRNA vaccines, where you've kind of done away with all of this, and you're basically giving the person the actual genetic code for the spike protein, and your body then makes that spike protein uh, from the mRNA. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit, uh, in, in a little bit more detail to, under, to break that down. So these are the three main ways that, that, that our coronavirus vaccines were put together. So this is a little bit more detail on the mRNA vaccine. So up on the left, you can see those squiggly lines. That's mRNA. The mRNA gets put into a lipid nanoparticle. Notice there's no microchip or no Bill Gates or Microsoft trademark in that lipid <laughs> nanoparticle. There's a lipid nanoparticle, which is just a little fat, a little globule of fat, so that it can get into the cell. And the nanoparticle enters the cell, the mRNA gets released, and the mRNA instructs the cells to produce the spike protein, which then you form antibodies to. That's basically, it's very elegant, very simple. That's how it works. And what, what this does is basically, you know, piggybacks on kind of the whole dogma of biology. So the central dogma of biology, if anybody remembers from college biology class or, or high school biology, is DNA gets translated into mRNA, which makes protein. So that's the usual way it goes. Obviously, there's some exceptions and, uh, there, the, where things can go backwards, but this is the general central dogma. MR, so RNA had been, had been um, discovered a long time ago. mRNA, which is, the form of, which is the form of RNA that's used to make protein, was discovered in 1961. But what was really difficult about it, it was very short-lived, very fragile, very unstable. Nobody wanted to work with it because it just basically uh, would disintegrate very quickly. It needed to be kept at very cold storage. So it wasn't a very attractive target to think about. Not like DNA, which is much more stable, obviously because DNA is our genetic material, it's, 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 it has to be stable. But mRNA was just this fleeting thing that people didn't really want to, 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 do, to deal with. Although there were some people, and these are some of the pioneers, that thought about mRNA uh, therapeutics. So, it's important to remember that most of what happens in mRNA is not related to the control of infectious disease. Moderna, BioNTech, they were not infectious disease companies. They, they were really trying to harness mRNA to do a lot of different things. The first thing that people started to think about mRNA was looking at diseases where there was a defective gene and you maybe make the wrong type of protein or you don't have the protein. And then you just replace the protein to fix that disease. They were doing this with gene therapy, trying to figure out how to do this, but there was one man named John Wolfe who took basically mRNA and directly injected it into leg muscles of mice and started to see protein getting made. That was a major, major deal because this was direct gene transfer and they were actually seeing the protein be made. The, the body wasn't eroding it, wasn't taking, destroying it. So this was basically the first effort to do this. And even in that original paper, which I've, I took some clips of, they, they talked about this could be used for vaccines, but that's not what people were doing this for. There was still a lot of difficulty in getting DNA or mRNA into cells because one of the things is, is that you have these enzymes that are called RNases, and they can degrade the mRNA very quickly, which is why the, this, this mRNA doesn't stick, stick around very uh, long time. And it's interesting because why does the body have all these RNases? Why does it degrade RNA so quickly? It's because many viruses 
have RNA as their genetic material. So evolution has given the human body away. When it sees RNA, it assumes that it's foreign, it's from a virus, and it degrades it very quickly, which is a problem when you're trying to use RNA for a therapeutic, because it's, the body doesn't know that it's there for good. It's just going to activate those, those enzymes and destroy the RNA. So this was a major problem. So even though this was happening, it was kind of this back corner of biology. It was really exciting stuff, but not anything that was considered to be um, something that was going to be ready for prime time soon. And this is around the, the 1990s. Um, so they're just showing that this can happen. They're just putting these things together, that this can actually happen. You can, you can maybe take, you can take someone's cells out of their body and then put mRNA on those cells and then inject them back into them, and then now this, those cells will be able to fight a cancer tumor. So somebody might have a tumor, you harvest their cells, you sequence the tumor, and you, give, you take those cells out in a Petri dish and expose them to the mRNA of that tumor and then put those cells back in, and now the immune system is able to recognize cancer. So that, that was what they were looking at. These are very cumbersome things. I'm saying taking cells out, doing these things, and putting them back in. Not easy stuff. So this is why, why people didn't really um, want to um, really pursue it that much. However, there were some people that did. And I think some of these names, I think eventually everybody's going to know their names because I think many of them are going to win Nobel Prizes. So the first two pair of people I want to talk about are, are Caitlin Carrico and Drew Weissman. So, Many of you probably have heard the story of Caitlin Carrico, who was a, a, a researcher at UPenn who basically believed that mRNA was going to be the future and was kind of working in this backwater, taking any job she could at UPenn for very low salary because she believed mRNA would work. Nobody really took her very seriously. And if you read books about it, it's really astonishing what Penn, Penn did. Multiple grant reje rejections. Uh, they moved her office into the hallway. Um, and she continued to persevere. And it was really only when she met Drew Weissman, and Drew Weissman is an HIV researcher from Penn who, worked, who came from Dr. Fauci's lab at NIH, who those two together solved some major, major problems with mRNA. And I'm going to get into that in a second. So these, these are just some quotes um, about Caitlin Carrico, which I think would be interesting to this crowd. So more than anything, Carrico cared about pursuing her research, not winning friends, playing politics, or boosting egos. Never afraid to tell you you're wrong didn't give a shit about your ego. She would challenge you, and this was very off-putting. And so, so th th just if you read about her, it's just really inspiring how much she persevered uh, to, to make this work. Drew Weissman, as I said, was a, a, a man that came from Fauci's lab, really interested in HIV vaccines, trying to use mRNA to make an HIV vaccine. And these two meet, I guess, over a copy machine is this, this, this story that's going to be legendary now at UPenn, where she says, I can do this with mRNA. And they, they make a partnership, and they solve one of the major problems. So what they were doing at this point is trying to, every time they were injecting mRNA into mice, they were getting sick, because it was setting off this major immune system thing, a major immune system process. Remember I told you that the body looks at mRNA and thinks of it as foreign. So that sets off a major immune reaction. It was triggering what we call the innate immune system. What Carrico and Weissman figure out is that if you modify the mRNA, the human immune system will not get activated. There's four different components in mRNA. One of them is called uridine. And what they realize is if they modified uridine into something called pseudouridine, it would have less immune reaction and be safe to give to the mice or to people. They published this in 2005 and patented it. It was the biggest, probably, 
push for mRNA vaccines or for mRNA therapeutics in general because they figured this problem out. And everything that you see with the Moderna vaccine, the BioNTech vaccine, all of those things licensed that patent uh, on this, this understanding of modification of mRNA. So this is what will probably win the Nobel Prize uh, eventually, probably Carrico and Weissman, uh, because of this, and that's what ushered the whole field in. So this is 2005, so this wasn't just happening you know, right when COVID came out. This was people doing this for some time building on the earlier work from the 1990s to this. And obviously, I, I leave out lots of intermediate steps because I'm trying to give you all the, the essentialized history. The other part, which I think is its own story, is that mRNA has to get into cells. And that's that lipid nanoparticle, which is itself a major discovery, which I'm not going to go into in, in great detail, but they had to figure out how to get lipid nanoparticles around the mRNA to fuse with the, with, uh, the membrane and then allow the mRNA to get in because not much of it was getting in without that. So this was something that took a, a while to do as well, which was another major uh, hallmark in the way that mRNA vaccines came to fruition. So out of this type of research, a few companies came about. Uh, Moderna, BioNTech, and CureVac. I don't know if you've heard of CureVac. CureVac is another German company. That was the one that Donald Trump tried to buy. He was talking to the CEO saying, I just want to buy the company, because CureVac was very far ahead uh, with mRNA technology. But none of these companies were infectious disease companies. They were all looking at cancer vaccines, trying to find some way to, to tackle cancer, because there was very, very little interest in infectious disease vaccines. This is, pe people don't really appreciate this, that most pharmaceutical companies don't like to get into infectious diseases because they're not very lucrative. You take a vaccine once, maybe twice, at the most, maybe like a flu shot. It's not the same thing as taking Lipitor every day. It's not very lucrative, and it's not something that they often go into on their own. So these were companies that were really just trying to think about developing mRNA therapeutics. Infectious disease was something that they didn't really want to, that could justify to their shareholders. So Moderna in 2010, they get formed basically out of, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's based on taking mRNA and turning stem cells, uh, turning regular cells into stem cells. That's what, MR, that's what Moderna comes from. That they weren't an infectious disease company. They were thinking about therapeutics with mRNA. Caitlin Carrico, after all of her issues at Penn, eventually joins BioNTech in 2013, which I think is, is a really, they, they recognized what a pioneer she was, and BioNTech in Germany hires her in 2013. So this is kind of where it sits, and if people always wonder where Moderna comes from. It's modified RNA, mod RNA. So that's, that's a tribute to that discovery, even though those companies all fight and they don't want to license, they, they're all fighting in patent wars with each other, but, but that's what Moderna comes from. So let's fast forward now to COVID-19. So this is the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, which is probably in the room here with us. Um, it has spike proteins, I keep mentioning, which are what, it, uh, what allows it to bind to cells. So it binds the ACE2 inhibitor, the, uh, ACE2, the ACE2 receptor, which is the, the, the primary receptor for the virus. It binds it with the spike protein. And that's what's critical for viral cell entry. So if you can block that, that's the rationale, with an antibody, then it can't attach and it can't, and it can infect. So they knew that the spike protein was important. And that's what they went after with these first vaccines. But there are a lot of key issues. So again, number one, avoid triggering the major immune response. That's what modified RNA does. How to deliver it efficiently. That's the lipid nanoparticles. Can the, and then you have to think, can the pathogen be targeted? Does it actually work? 
And how does it compare to a regular vaccine? Uh, doing it with a protein-based vaccine. You had to think about, is that the best way to go forward? And one of the, I think, the virtues of Operation Warp Speed was that they had candidates in all the different categories. You protein vaccines, viral vector vaccines, mRNA vaccines. They wanted a portfolio approach because they didn't know which one would work, and they all have different, different drawbacks and, uh, and uh, different advantages. The other issue is dosing, manufacturing, and cold chain. Cold chain means keeping it cold. Remember, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, has to be kept at minus 70 that, that Celsius. That's, those are really major issues when you're thinking about a worldwide problem that you're trying to solve and making a taking all this great research and turning it into a commercial product that people are going to use. So there were a lot of things that needed to be solved. Now I'm going to take you to the story of, of the NIH, which I think is another major person who may end up winning um, winning prizes that you'll hear about. And it's not, it's not Dr. Fauci, it's, it's Barney Graham, which I'll talk about in a second. So in 1997, President Clinton was kind of looking at what Kennedy did with the space, with the space program. And he developed an idea to make, make a, a vaccine research center at the NIH devoted to making an HIV vaccine in the next decade. Obviously, we don't have an HIV vaccine. HIV is a whole other 15 lectures to understand why there's not, why that's hard. But that's what President Clinton put in place at the NIH was this vaccine research center, trying to, to commit the NIH to, to put this together. And that's a picture, I mean, Dr. Fauci's been the head of NIH since the 1980s at, at, at NIAID. But this vaccine research center is, I think, really instrumental in the story of what happened. And there's a couple of interesting characters there that you might have seen some of their names, and I'm going to kind of go into a little bit of detail how this came about. So there is another disease called RSV. I don't know if any of you have heard of RSV. It stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It, it causes a lot of illness in children. And there was a failed vaccine trial decades ago, in the 1960s or so. And it actually, the vaccine enhanced disease. It made people sicker if they had the vaccine. And this, there's a man named Barney Graham who was trying to uncrack or unravel why that happened. And what he figured out was that the protein that they were using, the RSV protein, it had two different states. And if it was in one state, the antibodies that were formed against it would enhance disease. So the key thing was understanding that the shape of the protein matters. And he worked with another guy named Jason McClellan at NIH, who's now, I, I, think, it, I think he's in Austin, he's in Texas, um, that the shape of the protein really matters. And they had to figure out how to keep that protein from snapping into the other shape so that the antibodies would actually work. And this, this was a major, and I'll explain why this is important for, for, for COVID, but this is, what, this is what they were trying to understand. The shape of a protein, not just its sequence, influences how good the antibodies work, whether they're for good, if the antibodies that do good or they do bad. And at this vaccine research center, they were just aggressively working to, to use all of the technology that they had there. And the NIH made their own Zika vaccine within 100 days. It was a new paradigm, basically using platform technologies, using DNA vaccines, using mRNA. And what they notice is when they do this phase one trial for Zika and they make it to phase one, all the other competitors, other commercial companies doing it too. Moderna is one that gets there pretty quickly too with mRNA, which makes the NIH think that Moderna is a good partner for a lot of this mRNA work. So they start this partnership based on Moderna's success in the preclinical stage or in the phase one stage with Zika. They start moving to other targets because they basically now have come to this idea, using mRNA, using the, the, the technology that we know, 
that, that the technology has developed, we can make vaccines on the fly. So this becomes this paradigm to move fast with any kind of infectious disease. And not long after that, in, after the VRC was going on, there was another, there was an outbreak back in 2012 of Middle East respiratory syndrome. Most of you have heard of that. That's another coronavirus. This one spreads from bats to camels to humans, mostly restricted to the Arabian Peninsula. And this has a high case fatality ratio, 35%, very, very high. And there was an explosive outbreak in South Korea after, after the initial outbreaks in the Arabian Peninsula, and they start working on it. Now, this is going to make the RSV stuff make sense, hopefully, to you. So they decide they're going to make vaccines against MERS. They're going to start, the, start to do that. What they wanted to do, Barney Graham, Jason McClellan, the, those types of they, they wanted to figure out, they wanted to lock the protein in the prefusion state, in the good form that the antibodies could recognize. So they wanted it to be how it looks, like, looks to the virus to make sure the antibodies work. And they come up with this idea called, a, it's a two-proline substitution. So proline is an amino acid. So they basically change two, two little things on the protein, which locks it into place. So it doesn't go into this other form and cause antibodies that are formed against it to not be effective. This gets patented. This is a major, major discovery, this two-proline substitution, which is used in almost all of the COVID vaccines out there. And that came from the NIH team of Barney Graham, Jason McClellan, at the, at the, at the VRC. Kizzy Corbett, who many of you have heard of as well, or you might have heard of, she's the young, the young doctor that was the young PhD in, at the VRC. She proves that this 2P substitution works for all coronaviruses, that it locks the spike protein in the prefusion state so that the antibodies actually work. So this was kind of seminal work to show how do you make an effective coronavirus vaccine? And it's this 2P or 2-proline substitution that they, that they come to, and they patent this. And what ends up happening is they... Uh, when SARS-CoV, what did I hit? When SARS-CoV-2 comes around, Graham, McClellan, and Corbett at NIH take those principles and apply it to SARS-CoV-2. They do the two proline, make some other tweaks to it, and they come up with the ideal spike protein design. They send it to Moderna. Uh, they also send it to BioNTech, which is how BioNTech then takes that and has a vaccine within hours. That contract, because they're using this construct, that, that this two proline substitution that NIH has kind of pioneered. So this is how they move. So this is all happening within days. And then you have a vaccine candidate for both Moderna and BioNTech because they've taken the sequence with the, two, with the tweaks that, that the NIH, that, that NIH 2 proline tweak, and have now come up with a vaccine. And, and that's kind of the story of how it went so fast. And if you look, so 1961 was the discovery of mRNA and its function. This is hard to project. You might not be able to see it, but 1961. And then 2017 are the first in human tests of personalized cancer vaccines. So this is not something that people weren't working on. It was incremental steps. But when they decide, first, nucleoside modification, that's, that's Caitlin Carrico, and then this two-proline substitution at NIH, that really is what cinches the ability for these vaccines to be available so fast. But it's really a, a process that's gone on for a long time of people trying to harness mRNA to make therapeutics, to make to, to, make, to be, integrate them into medicine. And I think that's an important thing that's lost, because everybody says these are never-tried technologies, these are, new, these are new, so they're scared of them. But this has been going on since the 1960s. People have been trying to, to work on these. So it was something that people had a lot of understanding of the principles involved, understanding modification, all of that. Those are things that people knew ahead of time. So when it gets, you know, everybody is excited that these are new technologies and new vaccines, they come from a huge context of knowledge that had been going on for decades. 
And that's why, we're very, that's why we were confident that we understood how these vaccines work. I'm just going to give you a little bit on viral vector vaccines because I like all vaccines. I'm not, I don't want to be too favoritism to mRNA, even though it's more flashy. Um, J&J and AstraZeneca both use different viruses. I, I kind of showed that uh, earlier, that they basically take another virus to deliver the spike protein genetic material to the cell. And these are the J&J and AstraZeneca vaccines, which also were very fast. AstraZeneca was in the lead for quite a long time um, when, when we were developing vaccines, but then they had some setbacks with regulators and manufacturing that, that ended up... Uh, uh, putting them behind the behind, but those were also very innovative vaccines. And just to show you what they do here, and the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, what they what they do is they take a chimpanzee cold virus, they modify it, and they stick the spike protein in it, and then they inject you with, with they inject you with that modified virus, which then causes your immune system to uh, attack the spike protein that gets produced. And the Johnson & Johnson vaccine works very, very similar uh, to that. But this, again, is another platform. They're using this, this adenovirus, this cold virus, as a platform. They're not making it from scratch. They're plugging and playing, switching out the genetic material. There are also other really cool ones. So Novavax is a protein-based uh, protein uh, vaccine. It's approved in many places, but not in the United States yet. It's about to be, but there's some manufacturing issues that the FDA hasn't signed off on yet. But Novavax is a platform in a, in a different sense, but it, it, it ends up at the end making a protein-based product. But what's interesting about Novavax in, in, is that what they do is they take an insect virus, splice in the spike protein for coronavirus and the insect virus, have it infect caterpillar cells, and then the caterpillar cells pump out the spike protein, which they then purify and give you. So this is also really innovative as well, because they've got this platform of the insect virus and the caterpillar cells to make the spike protein, which this is what, if you've ever gotten flu block, which is a, a, a certain flu, it's a, one of the flu vaccines. Nobody ever looks at the brands of the flu vaccines except for nerds like me, but, they, but flu block is made this way. It's really innovative. And then there's another, and, and Novavax is doing something very similar. I mean, no, Novavax and Sanofi are doing very similar things. Metacago, which is a company you probably have never heard of, they use tobacco plants. They take the virus, they, they, they take a, uh, a plant virus with the spike protein and pour it on tobacco leaves, and those leaves then pump out the spike protein. This is approved in many countries, and one of the tragedies is, so Medicago is funded by Philip Morris, so the WHO will not even allow that to be used in, in, to pre-qualify. Even though it's approved in many countries, they won't because Philip Morris' money went to, uh, into the development of it because of, uh, because of the tobacco industry. So it's, it's strange because they want tobacco companies to do something other than make cigarettes, but then they do and then they don't uh, fund them. What's going on? So I don't, I think, I talked about these as first-generation COVID vaccines, and I think that's important because they're going to get different and get better. One of the best things that could happen is maybe we have a universal coronavirus vaccine, one that doesn't need updating, one that targets not just SARS-CoV-2, but the whole family of viruses. And Pfizer-BioNTech are in phase one. Uh, Walter Reed and the Army are also uh, working, uh, working on that vaccine, and it's, it's slowly plotting away. We also want vaccines that don't have to be stored at such cold temperatures. So there's trying to improve storage because if you're trying to vaccinate the world in places that don't have uh, electricity or, or ready access to electricity, that becomes a major problem. We're also thinking about more transmission-blocking vaccines. And I think this is something that many people are, don't quite understand. I'm going to get to that in a second. But you know, our vaccines are very good at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, and death. But with the advent of new variants, they aren't so good at transmission-blocking. But maybe if you gave it in your nose, 
which mimics natural infection, creates a different immune response, maybe that would work. There is a flu vaccine that's given that way. So there are people trying to make a nasal COVID vaccine as well. And then you're hearing about updated vaccines. Um, just a couple of days ago, we heard that the FDA is recommending an update. And you can ask me questions of whether I think that's a good or bad idea or what I think about that. Um, updating the vaccines to target Omicron, for example. And then better delivery systems, the lipid nanoparticles. That's also what gives your arm the soreness after the, the COVID vaccines, which are a little bit more than you, you see with other vaccines. That may have to do with the lipid nanoparticles. So they're working on all of, all of these things. So these, it's not static. These aren't the final COVID vaccines that we'll see. And they are trying to use mRNA to, uh, to, to combat other infections. But remember, not every pathogen is going to be amenable to mRNA. It's not, it's not magic. Sometimes it may be the best candidate, sometimes it may not be, but we're only going to learn that by actually studying it. But it's probably the fastest. So if there is another infectious disease emergency and we need to make a vaccine on the fly, it's likely mRNA vaccines that will go first uh, because, they, because of the speed, because they can just plug and play. They know they've made all these, under, they have all this understanding of modification uh, that, that can be applied to almost any pathogen. Imagine, like, with flu vaccines, because mRNA, remember we have these flu vaccine mismatches all the time? You could decrease the chances of that mismatch by using mRNA, because you would be able to then delay when you make the decision. So right now, they make a decision months and months ahead about what strains are going to be in the flu vaccine. And sometimes they get it wrong, because something might happen late in the season, and they're already committed, the manufacturers. If you could decrease the lead time by using mRNA, you might have a more accurate flu vaccine and a better flu vaccine. So there's a lot that's going to happen, I think, in the field of vaccinology over the next couple years. So now I'm going to turn to talk about what these first-generation COVID vaccines have achieved. So if you look at the um, modeling, looking at differences with vaccines, without vaccines, it's, it's really incalculable in terms of the number of, preventable de the number of deaths prevented, hospitalizations, and infections. We're talking about 17 million hospitalizations. And as someone who's worked in the hospital taking care of COVID patients, it was something, it was out of this world before the vaccine uh, in December and in January of 2020, 2021. But 17 million hospitalizations averted 60, 66 million uh, infections, over 2 million deaths. Healthcare costs, $899.4 billion uh, were, were projected to have been saved by these vaccines. It's really, it's, you know, vaccines. Uh, uh, are instrumental in our ability to deal with infectious diseases, and they have been with COVID-19. But the thing is, not enough people take them. And if you look at some of the modeling, there's been over 300,000 vaccine-preventable deaths. And that, that really shouldn't be happening anymore, but it still is happening. And I think that's, uh, you know, the, the vaccine can prevent almost... It doesn't... There, there are going to be people that die despite the vaccine when they are high risk, but the number of vaccine-preventable deaths for a vaccine that is free out of pocket that you can just go and get anywhere, that, that to me is, is, um, is, I don't quite know how to explain it, but I'll try to at the end. I want to now turn to, you know, what did the vaccines do or what, what do vaccines, what do we want a vaccine to do? The biggest thing we wanted the COVID-19 vaccines to do was reduce the impact of the pandemic. And if you remember back to what flattening the curve was about, it was about preserving hospital capacity. And that's what the vaccines really do. We also want vaccines to decrease spread, but I think that's a little bit difficult. Usually with spread, so in the early days, we were trying to debate who should we vaccinate uh, against COVID-19? Should we vaccinate the people that are spreading it in the community, or should we vaccinate the high risk? And we went with 
high risk because that's what was actually impinging on hospital capacity. But there was a 80% of cases of COVID are probably spread by 20% of the population. We have this kind of heterogeneous transmission that occurs, and there was some people who thought about doing that, but it clearly doesn't, um, it, it's, it's not the way to go with COVID-19 because in China, for whatever reasons, they've paradoxically vaccinated their younger people and their elderly people are not vaccinated and they have major issues mostly political issues, but they still have a lot of spread uh, that occurs. So I think that vaccinating high-risk people to decrease the morbidity, the mortality, the hospital capacity concerns was the best way to go, to go because COVID-19 has a disparate impact based on age. The older you are, that's the biggest risk factor for death is, is your age. So when it comes to vaccines, there are two different types of broad classes of immunity that vaccines provide you, sterilizing and non-sterilizing. So sterilizing is like measles vaccine. Once you've been vaccinated against measles, you're not going to get measles. Once you've been vaccinated against polio, you're not going to get polio. Non-sterilizing means you could still get infected, but it's going to be less severe. So the flu vaccine is a good example of non-sterilizing immunity. You still get infected with flu, even if you're vaccinated in maybe 40% of the uh, cases, but you're less likely to die from it. You're less likely to need hospitalization. COVID-19 immunity is non-sterilizing with the vaccines and with natural infection. SARS-CoV-2 comes from a viral family, and I think this is an important context. It's not its own thing. It's, it comes from a family. There's seven, there's seven human coronaviruses that we've discovered. Four of them cause 30% of our common colds. All of us have been infected multiple times with those other coronaviruses. Reinfection is the rule with those coronaviruses. Those coronaviruses evolved to be able to evade the protection of our immunity. But it's not all or none. Immunity is not all or none. So even if you get infected, despite immunity, you're less likely to have severe disease if you have some T cells, some antibodies that, that jump into action when your memory cells go. That's where SARS-CoV-2 was always going. I wrote a blog post in January of 2020 called The Fifth Seasonal Coronavirus, and people thought I was crazy for saying that, but that's exactly where this was always going to go. It's going to follow its other, its, its other family members and become something that continually reinfects us, but becomes much more manageable because of the immunity in the population, because of antivirals, because of monoclonal antibodies, because of rapid tests. That was always our goal, to drive COVID-19 to be a much more manageable infection. And I think that's what we're seeing happening right now. We have immunity in the population increasing, especially after the Omicron wave. So people who didn't get vaccinated got Omicron, people who were vaccinated got Omicron. So there's this hybrid immunity, people with vaccine-induced immunity plus infection-induced immunity, and then there's just people who have infection-induced immunity. That's, there's a lot of it in the population. So what you start to see is delinking or decoupling of cases from hospitalization. So cases are, are very high right now, but they're not leading to hospitals in crisis because most of those are now outpatient illnesses. They're being driven to the milder side because of the immunity, because of the antivirals, because of monoclonal antibodies. So successive waves are going to be less likely to compromise hospital capacity. Even Omicron, even though there were more people in the hospital during Omicron, they weren't as sick as what it was in the past because a lot of, there were a lot of incidental infections that we didn't see before that were there for Omicron because Omicron was so widespread but it's become increasingly unlikely to see a major issue in a, in a hospital setting because of all of these factors. And what the immunity that we have, I remember, it's a serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So when people say, I know someone who got the vaccine and got boosted or whatever, and they got infected, that's not what the vaccines were primarily designed to do. They were primarily designed to decouple cases from hospitalizations, remove the ability of this virus to kill, and they have severely compromised the ability of the virus to kill.
I want to talk a little bit now about risk-benefit calculations with vaccines, and I think this is something where a lot of people get tripped up in understanding. When we think about vaccines, there is a, a definite risk-benefit calculation because you're giving something to a healthy person. They're not sick yet. So you want to make sure that the, the, risk of, the, the risk of the vaccine is outweighed by the benefit of the vaccine or the risk of the disease. So what you do is kind of juxtapose those issues. And just to give you some examples, um, we heard about, for example, this is, kind, this is, I'm not going to go into detail here, just to show you that there's this meticulous risk-benefit calculation that occurs. This is from the CDC. On the, these are both from the CDC. Um, that's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which was causing certain uh, blood clots in, in, in females. But they, what they do is they look at the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations prevented versus the expected number of that disease that were occurring. And obviously, when you're an individual, it's hard to, you're looking at population numbers. But that's how they make a decision whether it's worth recommending this vaccine to a certain group based on the number of TTS cases that were occurred versus the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations prevented. And where there's a balance that's off, they don't recommend the vaccine. So, for example, the J&J &J vaccine now, they don't recommend, it's, it's considered a secondary vaccine even though I think that's a little bit too broad because that, that side effect really happens in reproductive age females. It's fine in, in males and everybody else, but they, that's kind of what they did. And the same thing is with myocarditis. So um, the brown is Moderna, uh, green is, is Pfizer. And what they're looking at is COVID-19 associated hospitalizations prevented per million, uh, per million doses of Moderna and Pfizer. And then they look at the myocarditis expected per million and make a decision based on that. And when you actually look at that, you can see how the risk benefit, this is in the 18 to 39 age group, that risk melts away or that you see what the, the, the risk benefit ratio looks like. That's how we think about vaccine recommendations, are looking at what the expected of, the, of a certain event is versus what you're preventing. And notice that they're looking at hospitalizations, they're looking at real out, you know, things that you don't want to happen with COVID-19. This is hospitalizations in 18 to 39 year olds, which isn't very common, but that's how less common myocarditis is. So another thing that you often hear is, how do you know about the long-term safety of these vaccines? They just came out. They're not something that, any, that anybody had had before. But the thing is, you, you have to think about how the vaccine works. So long-term safety issues are about what the vaccine actually does. And none of the materials that are used in any of these vaccines are brand new. They've all been used in other medicines. They've all been studied in animal models, in, in clinical trials. None of it is actually new, so we know what to expect. And when you think about, people say, what's going to happen 10 years from now? Nothing. Because the vaccine is gone by that time. So the, the, the reason a person has side effects from a vaccine is because of an immune reaction that the vaccine is causing or an allergic reaction to one of the components. That's going to happen immediately. So when the immune response is gone several weeks after, there's nothing left for that vaccine to have done. So side effects, even the longer-term ones, usually will appear within weeks to months post-vaccination. It's not something that's going to happen five years from now. You're not going to say that there was some side, it's just not, I don't think there's any way to think of it other than arbitrary, because it's not based on the actual biologi biological principles involved in the vaccine. It's gone. The, the, I, we, we talked about mRNA, how fleeting it is. It's gone. So it, it's, it's very strange um, th that, that this basic understanding of what the, the side effect has to have some tempor temporal relationship to what's going on and reflect the biology. 
as I said, the mRNA is degraded rapidly, and there is massive, massive surveillance for vaccine side effects going on right now. It's, it's the, the, the broadest one I've ever seen for any vaccine, uh, that people are really on the lookout for any signal, and those signals get run down. They, things got paused, like the AstraZeneca vaccine got paused, Johnson Johnson got paused, some of those clinical trials got paused because of side effects. So it's not as if these are, not, these are being brushed. I think there's probably an overreaction sometimes. I was one of the people who didn't want the pauses on both J&J &J and AstraZeneca, uh, but they, they, they happened anyway. So I'm going to move now to talk about the, the problem with the way we think about vaccines, the, the way we talk about vaccines, and what the solution is to all the vaccine hesitancy, or what I think of it. And some of this is a little bit of my own experimental thinking, where I'm dabbling into philosophical issues, and I recognize my subject matter expertise barriers and limits, so uh, I'm happy to take criticism here, and, I, and, I, and I've done my best to try to think through some of this, so um, bear with me if it doesn't make sense. So some of it is kind of common knowledge now. So when we think about why people have turned away from vaccines, you often hear education is the solution. The more we educate people about vaccines, the more they're going to accept them. But every study that shows that means, shows that they get more dug in. They become more anti-vaccine the more you tell them about the vaccines. So why would that happen if it was an education problem? They, they often say that there's this gap in information. Me as a doctor, as an infectious disease doctor, have all this knowledge, the general public doesn't, that's why they don't understand it. Only, if only they had your knowledge. But that's not what's happening, and it's not what's working. I mean, the vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vaccine movement are stronger than they've ever been before. And I think that the fact that we saw all those preventable vaccine deaths occur, 300,000, uh, shows what damage that this movement is doing to people when they take this in. And this anti-vaccine sentiment is metastasizing. People said, oh, it's just the coronavirus vaccine I don't want. I'm going to get the measles, mumps, rubella, the flu vaccines, but we've already seen erosion in all of those other vaccines. Robert Kennedy Jr. is everywhere talking about this stuff, and he's one of the leaders of that movement. So this is a, a real problem. Most of us that work in pandemic preparedness thought that we would, the biggest issue to, to stop COVID-19 would be getting a vaccine quickly. They solved that. That was a technical problem within record time. But we still are in the midst of, we still have too many people with COVID-19, too many people dying of COVID-19, too much of a threat. And it's because it's, people didn't take the vaccine at the rates that we expected them to. It's not like when Jonas Salk invented you know, the polio vaccine, when people were cheering and screaming. They, that, that these vaccines are met with derision from a lot of the people. And I think that's, that's something, I, I don't know how to explain it, and I don't think anybody in our field expected it, that this is the problem that we're going to solve, that they did all this mRNA vaccine stuff, we characterized a new virus, all of that, which sounded like could never happen before. I used to make fun of the movie Contagion because the vaccine rolls, the vaccine is being put into people as the credits roll. Like, that never could happen. That's a Hollywood thing. But it does happen now. But now it's just that people don't want the vaccine. So, you know, I was taking some of the classes at, at OAC with Nikos, and we, he was discussing postmodernism. And I started to think about postmodernism and the anti-vaccine movement, and if there were themes there that were similar, because some people in my field had talked about this. And I took some time to actually delve into it to see, you know, is this something that explains what's going on? So this is where I'm starting to get into some of the philosophical stuff, so uh, the errors are mine here if the, uh, I'm outside of my basic subject matter but expertise. So some of the tenets of postmodernism. Objective facts are not knowable. There's this radical skepticism about anything, uh, in the, knowing anything about the real world. 
they have this disdain for grand or meta-narratives, big ways of explaining the world. And to postmodernists, science and the scientific method are just another type of meta-narrative. They're no different than any other story that people tell themselves. And when you ask them about science, a lot of them will say that science is enabling of all these bad events. It's deceitful. It led to thalidomide, which caused birth defects. It led to nuclear weapons. It leads to pollution. So why would science be the solution to this? This is a quote from a, a, a book called The Risk Society, where it says, the sciences are entirely incapable of reacting adequately to civilizational risks since they are prominently involved in the origin and growth of those very risks. Instead, sometimes with a clear conscience of pure scientific method, the science has become the legitimizing patrons of a global industrial pollution and contamination of air, water, and foodstuffs. So they're clearly people that don't think science is the solution to many of society's problems. Another aspect of postmodernism is that they have this idea called standpoint theory, and I think most people probably have some understanding of this, that you can't stand outside whatever paradigm you're in, so I cannot stand outside the scientific method. I cannot stand outside my role as an infectious disease physician. And all the truth that I'm telling you is situated in that context. It doesn't apply to anybody else because it's just from my standpoint. And local narratives and stories become more important, and this leads to identity politics, where people think about what something, the, the truth of something based on their political identity. And I'm going to get to some, I have a good quote on that in, in the future, in a future slide, but that's often what, what you hear, that there's not one source of truth, that what truth I'm giving you is very different than somebody else's truth. And the scientific method is not necessarily seen as a better way to know knowledge. That's one cultural approach among many. And truth is representative of systems of power, that I'm here speaking to you as a system, as part of a power structure that, that's pushing the vaccine. That's, what, that, that's how they see it. That science is thought of as a branch office of politics, ethics, business, in the garb of numbers. That, this is some, that, that there's something not truthful, or there's no way to know the truth, and that whatever science is pushing is just another narrative. And that we live in you know, a post-truth world. And there's scientific truths that are included in this post-truth world, or that, you know, that there are alternative facts that are out there that, that people are bringing to you. Or you know, that, uh, so this is a quote from the, the George W. Bush administration, we're an empire now, when we act, we create our own reality. There's just this idea that this, there's no, no way to know truth and that they have alternative models of truth using different explanatory models. And they embrace health explanations that are more compatible with their values. So if they, if, if they're, whatever, their, whatever their value may be, if it doesn't include a vaccine, they're not going to think that the vaccine is an opinion, or the, having a positive opinion of the vaccine is an opinion worth holding. Misinformation to them is often their version of information. I think that that's become clear during this pandemic. That that is this flattened truth and relativism, that it all depends on what paradigm you're coming from. There is a massive suspicion of expertise, and everyone is thought of as their own expert to, to go do your own research without any understanding of if they can actually do their research or that there is a methodology there, that there's biostatistics, that there's biology that you have to understand. And these are all found in, this is a, a vaccine researcher that wrote the, 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 these types of, uh, found these themes in 2010 and 2012, just looking at websites, uh, anti-vaccine websites, trying to categorize where they fit. And she's the one who found this idea that there's, there's a lot of postmodern theory that's floating around in these vaccine websites. But I think, to, to go a little deeper, we have to try to understand what underlying issue 
Are they responding to, I should say they, are they responding to? So it is clear that science has been infused with politics. And I think that's no accident. When, when you have something that's taxpayer funded, it's going to get corrupted by what, those pri what the government's priorities would be. Uh, and expertise and authority get fused. And, and I think that happened a lot during COVID-19. I think that a lot of us that were subject matter experts had to become authority figures, <laughs> willingly or unwillingly. And I think it was mostly because our policymakers abdicated because they do, we don't have a national infectious disease policy. We don't have any proper way of understanding, and they didn't know what to do, so they wanted to pass the buck to scientists, and scientists got put in a horrible position. And some of them might have liked it, some of them, some, some of them probably hated it. And I, I'm not someone who, I, I always try to be nuanced of what I'm saying, and this is what I think is going to happen, more as a commentator rather than as, as, as someone trying to be the authority on it. And I think that you know, science can be used inappropriately in arguments as an appeal to authority where the scientific issue might not be the issue. That, you know, I think this is known as scientism, where this isn't a really a scientific question, this is a political question, or this is a moral question, where science gets infused in there and used as the way to end the argument. Because you know, if you have this imperture of being scientific, that gives you, you're thought of as using power, that saying, well, I'm, I'm representing science, so that automatically will give people the idea that, that this is more powerful than whatever else they're coming from. And I think that these are real issues. But I don't think what's happening with the, the way people are turning away from science and technology and facts uh, are going to, is going to be anything but, but disaster. There's a, another, this is another quote from that paper that was published in the journal Vaccine. The minds of the deeply invested anti-vaccine activists may never be changed. Therefore, it is for both the laypersons with genuine questions or worries about vaccines and the healthcare professionals that keeping abreast of the methods of persuasion is imperative. For an awareness of the disingenuous arguments used gives individuals the tools to think critically about the information they encounter. So this is about not allowing these bad ideas to continue. To, 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 you're not going to change the minds of a, of a Robert Kennedy Jr. There, 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 there's no way to, to do that. But what you want to do is say, you can't think about you, to, to the people that are the, vac, the merely vaccine hesitant or the people that are listening, is that that's not the right way to think about this issue. This is why this is wrong. That's what we have to do, is combat the thinking. I think you ha we have to stop, we have to take the battle to, at least I take the battle to the anti-vaccine activists, with the hope not of persuading them, but of showing people how flawed their, their reasoning is and, and what, they're, what they're doing. There was a, an article in um, <clears throat> the New York Times in 20, uh, um, earlier this year called The Anti-Vaccine Movement's New Frontiers. And this is what I was talking about, this metastasis to now rejection of ordinary childhood immunizations. People who were getting vaccinated now are not because of what happened. <clears throat> and one of the quotes from somebody, somebody there, I think really, to me, concretizes this postmodern idea that it, they think it is a culture. I feel like if I talk about science, then I'm going against their political identity because that science is part of some other meta-narrative that they don't actually believe in. And if you look, this is, a, this is another paper, a research paper that was just published in... Uh, clinical infectious diseases, where you see of people who are definitely not going to get a vaccine, you know, this, this distrust and dis, this distrust is very, very high. And I think it comes from this, this, whole, this whole way of thinking has become so pervasive in this movement that, that it's very hard. So there's people that, that are probably not going to get a vaccine and definitely not get a vaccine, but, you know, you don't see things like, you know, other people need it more now, don't know if a vaccine will work. That's not, it's like, don't trust the vaccine, don't trust the government is, is very, very high. And I think this is going to be a problem if, if people only think of vaccines as a government solution and not something that actually works. So I think 
I think that there's a few solutions that I think, and, in, and I don't think education helps. I think education helps people who are actually genuinely curious, but I think many of them are not. I think <clears throat> there's a lot of people that are unreachable. And what I think is most important is to prevent the spread of this philosophy to the more, to merely vaccine hesitant, those who have legitimate questions or those opposing vaccines for other reasons. This, th that's what needs to stop, is, is that, that style of thinking. And I think people are fighting that style of thinking in every field, but to see it like right in my field is very, very uh, surprising because this is something where you can just open your eyes and see how the vaccines work. So I think def de defensive rationality and reality, the basis for the scientific method is what needs to be defended. And, and I've given you know, versions of this talk to, to doctors, and I think they, they, it, it, um, it resonates with them, but they hadn't thought about it that deeply. One of the other points I wanted to make is that when people attack science and the errors that might have occurred, I think it's important to remember, as I said earlier, that it's, it's not omniscient, but that doesn't make it arbitrary. There's an objective method at work, and that's what I was trying to show you with the mRNA vaccines, that there's this is an integrated worldview based on the observations of reality. That's what science is. It's not a meta-narrative. It's not some construct. And the context of knowledge is always going to change as we make new discoveries, but it, it doesn't do, do so in a non-causal manner. It's not as if all of a sudden the rules of biology just change. It's going to, whatever we do find when the context expands, when there's a new piece of knowledge, it's going to be a causal process there. It's still reality, and it's going to still have to integrate with other aspects of reality. We may not know something, but what we find out is still going to still follow causality in, science, in the scientific method. And that is the method to know. And I, don't, I think that, um, I don't know if any of you went to Jim Lennox's talk, but he mentioned somebody there named Charles Lyell who wrote Principles of Geology. And I, I'm from Pittsburgh too, and I, when I was a student at Carnegie Mellon, I cross-registered to take Jim Lennox's class on Darwin, and it's one of the best things that, I, that I've taken. And when I was thinking about this talk, I, I think it, Charles Lau came back to mind. So this is, again, me dabbling in philosophy where I probably don't belong, but I'm just going I'm, I'm to try to make what, what I think is interesting. So Charles Lyell, Principles of Ge Geology, he's known for being a uniformitarianism that causes now operating are what are going to give explanations. It's not going to be some deity bending reality to create some new causal law or a causal law. It's not going to be like, he called it, it's going to be not some new primary or first cause. It was against catastrophism in geology. It was going to be causes operating now. You had to appeal to those causes because the world is causal. And I think it was a, a view of the primacy of existence, a thing that existence is what it is. It's not going to all of a sudden, the rules aren't just going to change. But if you look at the way that people approach the vaccine, it reminds me of David Hume. And again, I'm way out of my field here. So Hume didn't think that there was some binding between cause and effect. That events regularly occur and they're customarily or habitually paired, but we don't know what it is. And if we could know, even if we could know or somebody could know, we wouldn't, our minds aren't able to see this secret structure, this hidden identity that binds cause and effect. And I think that, that this type of thinking is what's happening when people say, well, the mRNA vaccines can make your arm magnetic. That's a real thing. Um, people believe that. Or whatever you might see, um, that it's like you're reading National Enquirer headlines. And I think that's where it comes from. They, they, don't, think of, they don't think like Charles Lyell, that they think of this, which has infected everybody's thinking. And I think it's there. And, and I think it's important to know that you know, ignorance of something, if we don't quite understand how something works, it doesn't make everything metaphysically possible. There's still basic laws that have to be 
to be there. So when somebody says, I got this happened with the vaccine, I, I, it, you can dismiss it almost out of hand because it's completely arbitrary and it doesn't have any kind of biological plausibility to it. But what's happened now is that anything is biologically plausible. You can just Google, just do some exercise, make something up and put it in your, in your Google bar, like COVID vaccine turned me into a chicken. It'll probably... <laughs> Well, people used to say that about the first smallpox vaccine, that it would turn you into a cow. That was real. Um, that, they, they said that to Edward Jenner. So this is just some, this, these are just ideas that I'm kind of throwing around in my mind. They're not really ready for prime time yet, but I'm trying to understand what's going on in that movement, trying to integrate what I know um, about philosophy and what I know about science and try to come up with an explanation because it's really mind-boggling to me. And if we don't solve it, the next pandemic, the same thing is going to happen and it's going to be worse because they're energized. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a very scary prospect. You know, so I'm going to leave a lot of time for questions, so I'm going to one, one or two more slides left that I want to talk to you. You know, so when all the attacks that the vaccines have taken, and me personally, the death threats, you know, they only go down so far because, you know, I have this love for infectious disease, a love of this field that's really unbreachable. And the fact that there are giants like this, like uh, uh, Ugar Sahin and Aslam Turisi, the, the founders of BioNTech, or... In this picture, Caitlin Carrico, Drew Weissman, Barney Graham, and Kizzy Corbett. The fact that they're in this field, that minds like this are here, that can solve these problems, I think it's, uh, it's, it's more than enough for me. And I think that when, you're defending, when I'm defending all of them and defending the vaccine, I'm also defending our founders, Louis Pasteur and Edward Jenner. And I think that it's incalculable the debt we owe to these vaccine pioneers. And I think that me in the battle trying to argue for the the, the the power of vaccines and the ability of vaccines to, to make human life better, I think it's, it's well worth it. Last two slides with, with quotes. I mean, I just, I, I love this quote. I put it up before in Ocon Talks, but it's from, from one he wrote to another, uh, Thomas Jefferson, writing to Jenner. You have erased from the calendar of human afflictions one of its greatest. Yours is the comfortable reflection that mankind can never forget that you have lived. Future nations will know by history only that the loathsome smallpox has existed and by you has been extirpated. So I think that people did recognize the value of vaccines. Imagine the 45th president saying something like that to a vaccine developer. <laughs> and so that's the formal talk. Um, I wanted to just, I put this, when I talk about the vaccines, I often think of COVID-19 vaccines as reared in metal. And I just put this conversation there in the background while you can read through at your leisure while the Q&A period goes. But it's really reminiscent of this conversation between Jim Taggart and Dagny Taggart over Reardon Metal, um, of why, uh, and, and I think it's, uh, I think, fitting, uh, because to me, the COVID-19 vaccines are, uh, are Reardon Metal. So thank you. I hope that was interesting. I'm happy to take as many questions as I can. Thank you for this talk. Um, I had um, a quick question for you. What are your thoughts on the process of FDA approval and regulation of vaccines in general, particularly the fact that the government can, you know, make it so that a vaccine doesn't reach the public? Do you think that PEP vaccines should be able to reach the public and individuals should decide that? Or should there be some kind of law in this area? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I think we have to think about kind of an ideal society versus what we have right now. So right now, the FDA does license vaccines that they do control uh, when, they get, when they become available to the public, whether they're fully approved or emergency use. I don't think that that's the ideal process, but I do think in an ideal world, what you would have is what happened in the past, before the FDA, when there were vaccines, that 
professional societies, other organizations kind of did the work, some of the work that the FDA did and gave their recommendation that this is a, a worthy vaccine, this is, this is the, the side effect profile of this vaccine, that they would evaluate it almost like um, the way the underwriter's laboratory does it for other products where they look and they evaluate it. And I think that there's no reason that some of the, the legitimate functions that, that the FDA has or the legitimate role that they play in helping people understand risks and benefits of drugs and vaccines could, there's no reason that that couldn't be something that was a private function or groups like the AMA, which used to do that before the FDA, couldn't revive that, that it couldn't be something that a company sought for. And they do that all the time for many other products where, where they will seek for an approval. And, and all the professional organizations will look at the FDA vaccines and then make recommendations. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has its own recommendations, infectious disease studies. So you could actually build that out. So I think right now, that's a situation we have. I think it's something that needs to be fixed, but it's one of the last things that will probably be fixed when it comes to government control of medicine and regulation of medicine. But I think it would make, uh, it would make things a lot easier because uh, the, there were issues even with these COVID vaccines and how quickly they were approved and what the FDA wanted and didn't want. Thank you. We have a question from the online audience. Uh, could you comment on the lack of T-cell immunity studies in regard to the regular booster shots recommended in Europe? So I think, so this is a little bit of a technical question. So we talked about T-cell immunity here, and T-cell immunity is very, very important for protecting against severe infection, hospitalization, and death. Antibodies are probably more important for stopping infections, but most of our vaccine and booster studies are not looking at T-cell immunity. They're only looking at antibody levels, and antibody levels are going to drop, and then you get a boost or you get infected, and they go back up. That's what happens. So what the booster decisions have been really premised on declining antibody levels, and most of us in the field know that that's not a good thing. However, that's what they've chosen to, to go after, and I don't think it's a good way to think about who needs boosted and when to get boosted. I think that boosters are more about protection against severe disease, and we've only seen er erosion of the vaccine's ability to protect against severe disease in high-risk populations, not in the general population. So I was somebody that was for targeted boosting and not using just antibody data, but that's what the regulators have kind of went with, and that's kind of what we're stuck with. So we have a very, very poor booster policy. Um, I personally used my own knowledge of databases to obtain a third booster of my Moderna vaccine. Um, I believe it's illegal, but I don't think I'm going to be actually arrested for it. Um, but why are the government agencies so reluctant to let your individual doctor uh, make those decisions and, you know, give everybody order, you only get two boosters and that's it? So I think in general, during a public health emergency, there's a tendency for the government to want one-size-fits-all answers. And we know that humans are not one-size, that there are some people that would benefit from more boosters, some that would benefit from less boosters, but that, that's kind of the, the practice of precision medicine. I think eventually we will get there with COVID-19 once the public health emergency sort of fades away. But right now, the government wants everything very simple. They're, that's what they're going to be biased towards. They don't want any thinking done because they just want the problem to go away. And I think that actually causes distrust because many people know that there are different nuances between this person and that person. This person might need one dose of vaccine. This might, might need two. This one may need more and more and more. But sometimes that gets erased 
because they just want something simple that they can put on a website, that they can put in a public service announcement, and that doesn't serve anybody very well, and it just creates an idea that the government is not actually following the science. And I think that's, that's a problem that, that I've mentioned multiple times to those types of people, but it's this tendency to have a simple message that, they, that they're drilled into their heads, just like, you know, during, you know, like, duck and cover, or, you know, th th those type, they like those types of messages, and that's what doesn't really apply to medical countermeasures, but that's what they've done. Uh, the second question, since the major uh, side effect of vaccines in males is myocarditis, and that's something that's preventable, and I'm actually taking the prevention regimen. Why isn't the prevention regimen for myocarditis more widespread in use? So I don't know what particular regimen you're taking, but I can talk about myocarditis in general. So the risk for myocarditis is with the mRNA vaccines, more with Moderna versus Pfizer. And it's not a universal risk. It's really in males that are teenagers to early 20s. And it likely has to do with the fact that the vaccines are spaced three and four weeks apart. And the easiest way to avoid myocarditis is to actually space the vaccines farther apart. So you get the first dose, and then instead of getting it in three or four weeks, you get it in eight or 12 weeks, if you're in that high-risk category. That takes care of the issue. Um, and the myocarditis that's occurred has, is very different than other types of myocarditis. It's very transient, very mild. It doesn't really cause any kind of damage. And remember, COVID-19 itself causes myocarditis, and I've taken care of patients with COVID-19 myocarditis. I think this was all blown out of proportion, and I also think that the government just didn't come up with simple solutions saying, hey, this is what's happening. Why don't you space the vaccine dosing? They didn't want to say that because, again, one size fits all, and then it ended up creating distrust. Do you think the... Um uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system is accurately correct uh, collecting um, the data and uh, is it useful for um, evaluating the relative risk between the COVID-19 vaccines compared with other vaccines? So the, the VAERS database, so the, the, that, what's been mentioned here, that's not, what it is is basically a trash bag where anybody can put whatever they think might have happened. And it's used by researchers to actually sift through to look for a signal. But what's happened during this pandemic is the lay, lay public is looking at that VAERS database and interpreting it without the context that it's just meant to be a catch-all, that anybody can report anything. If you get hit by a car, that can, be in, that can be in that database. And they just use it to sift through it. It's one of many different surveillance mechanisms to look for signals of maybe something is happening, maybe there's myocarditis, maybe there's blood clots. They look and then they run it down and do proper epidemiological studies. So it's not meant to be used the way it's being used. And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, people and the anti-vaccine movement, people are reporting everything in there. So when you try to compare VAERS database reports for COVID-19 vaccines, they're going to be off the charts compared to the mumps vaccine because there's a concerted effort to report all of that. And there's so many people getting vaccinated at once. So I wouldn't look at that outside of expert eyes. It's not meant to be not meant to show causal relationships. It's just meant to be a grab bag, which they then look, that becomes the material for how they try to identify causal relationships using proper studies. Thank you for your talk. Um, I realize my question might be slightly outside of your area of expertise, but that new pill that has cured cancer in some people, um, do you know anything about that? Can you tell us more about that? And do you see that type of treatment, the pill treatment for cancer like that, do you see that becoming more common, hopefully so? Okay, so 
yeah, that's not my, not, not my expertise, but I will try to answer the best I can. So I'm not an oncologist, not a radiation oncologist, not anything to do with cancer, that, that cancer drug, but I will... So there was a breakthrough in rectal cancer where they used a, a drug that targets certain genetic mutations, and they had 100% response in a very small clinical trial. So there's a lot of promise there. People think this might be applicable to other cancers, and I think that there is probably going to be major breakthroughs in cancer therapy based on that change. But again, I'm not an oncologist, so take that with, for what it's worth. Hi. Um, you mentioned some trouble with regulators when it comes to like getting vaccine through and, and uh, getting it like in the hands of consumers. But could you maybe give a word to, to the potential that's possible if, if regulation gets, gets scaled down a bit and uh, what, do, what, what that would do for like the biotech sector in general? Well, I think it would be it would be miraculous. It would be it would be unimaginable. I couldn't actually imagine what it would be if they didn't have to go through all of that. One of the problems, though, is that the companies are so used to regulators that everything is designed to get through those regulatory loopholes. So it would take if so. Suppose tomorrow the FDA were gone, and the EMA and all of the UK medicines agency, they would still do things as if the FDA was there because all of their processes and quality control is key towards getting FDA approval. So it's not as if tomorrow they just FDA said, we're going to approve, every, we're not doing that anymore. It wouldn't change over time because you've got decades and decades of working to get through that regulatory pathway that's influenced what drugs got developed, where, where the pathways went, what, how the clinical trials were designed. So it wouldn't be instantaneous, but it would be obviously better. But I think it's important to think it's not as if tomorrow everything would be Atlantis if that, if, uh, and people would be living to 300 and all of that. That's not, it's going to take some time. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the lecture and all the good information you've been putting out during the whole pandemic. Um, one of the early promises about the mRNA vaccines was that they would be more easily tuned and changed for new strains or uh, just be faster in that way. And that hasn't really seemed to happen. Do you have any thoughts on why and if that's going to change? So it is true that mRNA vaccines can be changed and adapted very, very quickly. What's happened is that this is all being driven by public health agencies like the CDC and WHO and the FDA. So they haven't updated. They've, every time there's been a new variant, Moderna and Pfizer have made a vaccine batch against the beta variant, the alpha variant, the delta variant, Omicron. They just aren't going to pull the trigger because this is not, it's the government that has to make the order because they're the only buyers of this vaccine. Go, so the, there likely will be in the fall updated vaccines. They could have happened earlier. But the problem is that this virus is evolving. And even if you make a variant-specific vaccine against Omicron or the BA4 or BA5 version of Omicron, by the time that vaccine is rolled out, it can be made fast, but it's still the manufacturing process, scale up, all of that is going to take time, and you maybe have that in fall, it may be that BA4 and BA5 are already gone, and now you're against something else, so you're always playing catch-up. So that's why I think even this, these first-generation vaccines would probably, I think what would supplant them would be a universal vaccine where you don't have to update it. And I think that's really what the, the holy grail would be with flu and with COVID. And I'm encouraged that Pfizer-BioNTech has something in phase one and that Walter, the Walter Reed Army Research Institute has something that looks very promising as well. Thank you. Um, I'd like to get a little more clear on the technical differences between the mRNA vaccines and the viral vector that you mentioned early on. So if the viral vector is not delivering mRNA, then what kind of genetic material is it delivering? And why is it that that requires a viral vector, whereas the mRNA can get through with just a lipid nanoparticle? So viral vector vaccines, were this, they kind of were their own development pathway of using carrier viruses. And what they deliver is 
what you do is you take whatever your gene of interest is. So for it would be the spike protein gene. They put it and they integrate it into the into the chromosome of the virus, so or the, the genetic material of the virus. So we're using adenoviruses here. So they take the RNA, I'm going to get technical, and turn it into DNA, and then stick it. They split, they put it in that virus. So what the virus does is just act like a virus. It thinks it's still a common cold virus. So it goes in, it infects the cell, it uncoats that DNA gets turned into R. So it, it eventually turns into. It just becomes one of the proteins. It adopts the protein of the target and then synthesizes it. So it just acts as if, as if it's a virus. This is what's used in the, e the Ebola vaccine, the Merck Ebola vaccine. That was probably the first viral vector vaccine to get approved, um, where they used a different virus and stuck the Ebola glycoprotein in it. And then the virus just acts as if it's a regular virus, and it pumps out that protein along with its own proteins. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so why, why is it that that needs a whole viral vector, whereas the mRNA can just slip in? It, it doesn't. You could do it either way. Just people were not having... Pro viral vector vaccines came about before mRNA vaccines because people didn't think mRNA could... They had to modify it. You had to figure out how to deliver it to a cell. So there's no reason. No, it, it, it does, they're just two different technologies solving the same problem. But there were hang-ups with using mRNA because there were technical problems that, that weren't solved, but it was much easier to use a virus to do it because a virus already knows how to do all that stuff, to get into a cell, to fuse with the cell. They had to figure out, you know, how can you deliver mRNA? You had to figure out lipid nanoparticles. And in many ways, you can almost think of the mRNA inside a lipid nanoparticle as like a quasi-virus. Yeah. Okay. Really interesting. Thanks. Hi. Thank you so much. This was illuminating and interesting. Um, I uh, am most curious to know you mentioned nuances in human responses, and in fact, nuances are the number one uh, objection I hear within my community about why this is not applicable to them. So, for example, my family members are extremely autoimmune compromised, um, and then I go to work every day and I see people from different you know, ethnic, ethnic groups and all that, and everybody's claiming that not enough testing has been done on my group, and therefore, like, they don't really know how much uh, information and testing, how much do we really know um, what data has been or is being gathered on an ongoing basis to understand this? So the second part of your question, that was one of the reasons the vaccines took as long as they did is because both Moderna and Pfizer were, like, were dinged because they didn't have as, as much racial diversity in the trials as the regulators wanted. Just because of exactly what you said, that people in those racial groups will say, well, there was not enough of us in there. But there clearly what, there were representative I think the clinical trials are representative of the racial diversity on the planet. I don't think that there's any specific racial issue, racial genetic linkage with any kind of adverse effect. And with autoimmune disorders, I think it's, there's not really been any data to show any major autoimmune triggering effect that occurs. In fact, I think autoimmune people who are often on immunosuppressants are the ones who would benefit the most from the vaccine. My mother has rheumatoid arthritis. She's one of the first people to, to line up to get the vaccine. So I, I think that there's just misplaced understandings about what, what actually happens. But there hasn't, they did look for autoimmune triggers. They, that, that was something that was in those clinical trials. When the immune reaction to the vaccine was going on, they did not see any, any higher rate of autoimmune reactions occurring uh, in people that were vaccinated. So I think that these are safe and effective vaccines in that group. Thank you so much. And I wonder if um, there's follow-up uh, tracking being done to see whether or not that is in fact the case as the general population takes the... the there's the so much, there's unbelievable amounts of tracking going on of, of, of the people that were in the clinical trials, lots of monitoring for adverse events. There's not, you know, of the signals that you've heard about, myocarditis and blood clot, that, those are the only two major ones that have really come out. But there's an ongoing effort that will go on for years and years, even though I think it's not going to bear any fruit. Okay, thanks so much.
Throughout the pandemic, ethical questions such as what are the appropriate restrictions have been presented as merely scientific questions. As a result, people have, on both the right and the left, have conflated science with the politics that basically ran every single aspect of their lives for two years. Do you think this partly explains the rise of the anti-vax movement, transforming the disdain for the unprincipled disdain for lockdowns into a disdain for science? I definitely think that that plays a role. I think that uh, because, because people were so frustrated with the, the horrible government responses across the world, they just folded that, that, the vaccine into that, same, into that same sentiment, that they thought they don't make a distinction between the vaccines and all of the other government policies. So yes, I think that that definitely played a role um, in, in vaccine hesitancy. But even if you look at states, for example, like Florida, where there were no restrictions, they have high va vaccine hesitancy too. And some of the, the most anti-vaccine uh, politicians are in a state where they had no restrictions uh, throughout the pandemic. So I don't think it always adds up, but clearly I think that the, the way that the government, governments of the world handle this pandemic has made vaccine uptake suboptimal and they are to blame for it. Even in the United States, you had politicians like, like uh, Governor Cuomo in New York saying, I'm, even if this gets FDA approved, I'm going to make my own FDA in the New York to see if in New York to see if it works, or or people calling it you know a Trump vaccine or and not wanting to get all of that added up. But I think it all comes down to government incompetence in this pandemic all the way through. Uh, and what's happened is that there was a pre-existing anti-vaccine movement, which I think has melded with with these with, with all of the, the using the pandemic as a way to accelerate their own movement. And I think that's what's happened. Thank you. Thank you for a great talk. Uh, I have two quick questions. One is myocarditis related and one is Operation Warp Speed related. The myocarditis question, I couldn't tell from your slide because of the, I was sitting too far away. What is the percentage of young men in the 18 to 39 year old age group that got clinically significant myocarditis or they get that? Um, let me see if I can, well, I, don't know, I can back it up to you. I don't have it memorized. I, 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 I don't have the numbers you memorized. Have like a ballpark figure. I, I couldn't tell just from the slide what what it might be. Thank it looked you. pretty significant, though. No, it's a, it's the scale for that age group. Oh, so yeah. Can you put the slide back up for a second? So if you look at Moderna, it was 68 per million second doses. So that's the the average. I don't have the number in my head of how many were actually. But these, it's important to remember that those myocarditis cases were very mild. Most of them don't even. They're very different than the myocarditis cases that we've had. It's just any time that people have heart inflammation, it's taken seriously. But I would say that these myocarditis cases are almost of a different flavor than the traditional myocarditis cases. Can, can they cause electrical conduction abnormalities in these young men? Transient, but Transient. none of them have, not like the other types of myocarditis that we've okay. seen. This, oh. These people get better very, very quickly. It's, it's such a mild type of myocarditis, it's, it's very strange. Versus when someone has COVID-19 and gets myocarditis, that's like a full-blown case of myocarditis. Right. And the second question about Operation Warp Speed, <clears throat> I believe that in January, on the 15th, ironically, the day that the impeachment process really got underway, so the nation's attention was really diverted, I think that's the day the first patient actually, that the CDC actually got a first patient to check the viral genome and to make sure that this was not a bioterrorism weapon and things like that. So. Could you comment then on the fact that we do have this vaccine that's just miraculously been available in since when? It was uh, March to 20, so eight, nine months development, which is just unprecedented. And 
how that was related to some of the removal of the regulations. I think uh, 3M and Honeywell said they would make masks and ventilators if Trump would get rid of the federal, some of the regulations and some of the penalties for developing the, pro the product so quickly. So I, I definitely think that Operation Warp Speed removed a lot of the red tape and bureaucracy. There's a, a really good book that came out by Paul Mango, who was the, in, in the Trump administration, talking about how they put together this team to, to accelerate the process of turning the, getting the vaccines from phase one trials where they were already with, before Operation Warp Speed, through phase two, phase three, manufacturing all the logistics, using the military uh, to, to transport, all of that definitely played a major role in the fact that vaccines went into arms in very, very quick time. I think that Operation Warp Speed is sort of the model for how to, how to do this. There are some aspects of it, though, that I disagree with, like the inv invocation of the Defense Production Act, where they basically they basically forced certain companies to make certain things. They had de facto export restrictions, so you couldn't, you couldn't uh, sell your vaccine outside of the United States. There were some aspects of it that, that I think were problematic, but the general paradigm of getting rid of all this unnecessary red tape is something that we should be using for all our vaccines um, and for all of our medical countermeasures. I think that that's something that a lot of us have recognized, and I think that you'll see that in the, in the future. Thank you very much. Dr. Amesh, thank you very much for your talk. I have one question, and you'll have to bear a bit with me with the background knowledge and with the technicalities of the concepts. Like, um, I decided not to get a third booster shot um, because of information that was presented to me that arguably said that M that particularly mRNA COVID vaccines might have, uh, let's say, higher risk to, co to cause thrombosis. And also that if you got vaccinated and at some point in the later future you would get COVID, there was a certain risk that your lungs might start to bleed and that you might actually cough blood. Um, I did not look into the specific data in order to validate this claim, but I live in Heidelberg, Germany, where one of the largest hospitals in all of Germany is, is filled. And I heard, let's say, rumors from people that I know that there are, that actually many um, COVID patients who land there actually cough blood um, after they get vaccinated and get um, a posterior COVID infection. So could you comment on this? Yes. So, so I don't think that there is a, there's not a major risk of the mRNA vaccines causing blood clots. The blood clot issue is with the J&J &J and AstraZeneca vaccines, and it was a special type of blood clot in women of reproductive ages and very rare. So I don't think that's a valid, that, that's not a valid side effect or not something that should dissuade you from getting it. The coughing of blood, any, that's not a major symptom of COVID or, and it's not related to the vaccine. You're actually probably be less likely to, to cough up blood because you wouldn't get a lung infection. You'd be much less likely to get COVID pneumonia if you're vaccinated uh, and, and get a breakthrough COVID case. So none of the, that I think is, uh, is, uh, uh, should, should influence your decisions on getting vaccinated. All right. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Dr. Adolja. Uh, do you think private platforms should ban anti-vaccine voices? I think that's up to the private platforms. I think they're private platforms, so they have the idea to think about what what they what what they what content they want to have and what content they don't want to have. I think that uh, th this is an issue of you know of misinformation out there, but I think it's each company has to come up with its own its own uh, rules of engagement of what they want to publish, and I think it should be clear, and people should know that ahead of time so that they know what they're getting on those things. But I you know I don't like seeing anti-vaccine movement uh, posts on social media. I get a lot of them. It would actually help my inbox. I'm probably getting them now, um, but uh, but it, that's up to those companies to, to decide. If you're in, if you're in a population that has not been um, part of a clinical trial, and I know we talked about racial groups, but I'm thinking of specifically pregnant women who are initially excluded. How do you see thinking about getting a vaccine in that context? Like, is more hesitation warranted? Do you really just have to think about mechanistically? Could this possibly? Hurt the fetus. So that's a good question. So the, the companies want they wanted a clean trial, so they they excluded pregnant women because they didn't want to deal with that issue. But women, for, so for example, that question specifically COVID, women still got pregnant during the clinical trial, and there was no issue that was there, and there was no biological issue. And then they've done major follow-up studies. So I think you have to be careful with certain populations, and there were cautions regarding that. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists had kind of a, a kind of a middling statement they were of recommending it, and. As data came out, they modified it as, as they were doing clinical trials or follow-up on pregnant women who decided to get vaccinated. But I think, yes, there, there always is that concern. And I think you have to have a nuanced message to certain groups where there might be a side effect that needs to be addressed. But I think it turned out very well for pregnant women. They're actually one of the priority groups that should be getting vaccinated. Hello, Amesh. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, like you, I do also share concerns about the anti-vaccine movement. I think rationality in these matters is needed. But I think one can be pro-vaccine and simultaneously refuse to take it, not due to conspiracy concerns or whatever it might be, but simply from a risk assessment. For instance, uh, if you're healthy and young and you make an assessment that COVID will probably not impact you that harshly, um, I, I just think that this there might be a, an opinion out there that the anti-vaccine movement is actually bigger than what it actually is. And there, there might be a, group, a large group of young people that are just making a rational assessment on COVID will probably not affect me that much. So why would I take a vaccine that has, no matter how small a chance of side effects, to cure something that wouldn't yeah, affect me that much? If I was to give a sort of analogy, I mean, let's say that I have a mild headache, if you will. Am I willing to take an aspirin with a very small chance of side effects or just let the mild headache pass, if that's a viable analogy? So what do you think about that mentality? And um, just give me your thoughts on that, please. I think it's a reasonable way to approach any type of medical decision, that you weigh the risks and benefits and you make a decision. What, but it's not young, healthy people that are filling up the hospitals for not being vaccinated. What we saw is vaccine hesitancy in groups where they absolutely should have been getting, that they should have been lining up to get vaccinated. But yes, I think that there, there is room for that type of thinking of are you at risk for this disease? Are you at risk for the severe consequences of disease? And think about the side effects of the vaccine. I'm not vaccinated against Japanese encephalitis because I don't have a risk for Japanese encephalitis. You have to make those types of d decisions. But what, what happened is many people that were high risk 
chose not to be vaccinated, and ended up crushing our hospital systems again and again. And that's, that's the paradox to me. It's not the, the, if it was just young, healthy people refusing the vaccine, we would have been out of this problem long ago. But it was people that had risk factors. I took care of so many people after the vaccines were available with COVID that had multiple risk factors, and they just didn't take the vaccine, and they die. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.